All right. If you are visiting Mercy, we are in the early stretch of the book of 1 Samuel. And just to bring you up to speed a little bit about where we've come from, where we're going. The context is Ebenezer, which we just sang about, which literally means stone of help. But the Israelites went out to fight the Philistines, and they've lost. They've lost 4,000 men, and they come back. The elders ask, why has the Lord defeated us? And they say, well, why don't we go back to Shiloh, bring the Ark of the Covenant, bring it into battle, and maybe God will defeat our enemies with the Ark. So they get the Ark, they bring it from Shiloh, bring it to Ebenezer. They bring it into the, where the people are, and there's this mighty shout, and the Philistines can actually hear the shout. And it instills great fear within the Philistines. And the Philistines, um, as we'll see, will, they'll have a little pep talk. And uh, they say, let's fight like men. Let's not fear too much. Israelites and the Philistines fight again with the ark present. Instead of losing 4,000 men this time, they lose 30,000. The ark is captured. Eli's sons, Hophni and Phinehas, are dead. And a man from Benjamin flees the field of battle, runs back to Shiloh, tells Eli, who is blind at this point, that 30,000 people have died. Your sons are dead. Hophni and Phinehas are dead. And the Ark of the Covenant has been captured. And once he hears the Ark of the Covenant has been captured, he keels over backwards, breaks his neck, and he is dead. And if you remember from, must have been a couple of weeks ago, in 1 Samuel chapter 2, this is the fulfillment of the Lord's word. Lord promises that the house of Eli will come to an end. Sons are dead, Eli's dead, and that's where we're at. The, the ark has been captured. And this brings us geographically from Ebenezer to Ashdod. Ashdod is a city in Philistia, and this is where we pick up our reading, very long reading this morning, and uh, so long, in fact, that there's only half a page for notes to be taken. But pay attention. This is, this is a weird passage. It, seems, it will seem very, really foreign to us. There's golden mice, there's all sorts of strange stuff going on, but pay attention because, as you will see, it is eminently practical and relevant to where we are today, as is all of God's Word. So here, the reading of the Lord's Word. 1 Samuel 5, 1, 7, chapter 7, verse 2. When the Philistines captured the Ark of God, they brought it from Ebenezer to Ashdod. Then the Philistines took the Ark of God and brought it into the house of Dagon and set it up beside Dagon. And when the people of Ashdod rose early the next day, behold, Dagon had fallen face downward on the ground before the ark of the Lord. So they took Dagon and put him back in his place. But when they rose early on the next morning, behold, Dagon had fallen face downward on the ground before the ark of the Lord. And the head of Dagon and both his hands were lying cut off on the threshold. Only the trunk of Dagon was left to him. This is why the priests of Dagon and all who enter the house of Dagon do not tread on the threshold of Dagon in Ashdod to this day. The hand of the Lord was very heavy against the people of Ashdod, and he terrified and afflicted them with tumors, both Ashdod and its territory. And when the men of Ashdod saw how things were, they said, the ark of the God of Israel must not remain with us, for his hand is heavy against us and against Dagon our God. So they sent and gathered together all the lords of the Philistines and said, What shall we do with the ark of the God of Israel? They answered, Let the ark of the God of Israel be brought around to Gath. So they brought the ark of the God of Israel there. But after they had brought it around, the hand of the Lord was against the city, causing a very great panic. 
and he afflicted the men of the city, both young and old, so that tumors broke out on them. So they sent the ark of God to Ekron. But as soon as the ark of God came to Ekron, the people of Ekron cried out, They have brought around to us the ark of the God of Israel to kill us and our people. They sent therefore and gathered together all the lords of the Philistines and said, Send away the ark of the God of Israel and let it return to its own place, that it may not kill us and our people. For there was a deathly panic throughout the whole city. The hand of God was very heavy there. The men who did not die were struck with tumors, and the cry of the city went up to heaven. The ark of the Lord was in the country of the Philistines seven months. And the Philistines called for the priests and the diviners and said, What shall we do with the ark of the Lord? Tell us what, with what we shall send it to its place. They said, If you send away the ark of the God of Israel, do not send it empty, but by all means return him with a guilt offering. Then you will be healed, and it will be known to you why his hand does not turn away from you. And they said, What is the guilt offering that we shall return to him? They answered, Five golden tumors and five golden mice, according to the number of the lords of the Philistines. For the same plague was on all of you and on your lords. So you must make images of your tumors and images of your mice that ravage the land and give glory to the God of Israel. Perhaps he will lighten his hand off you and your gods and your land. Why should you harden your hearts as the Egyptians and Pharaoh hardened their hearts? After he had dealt severely with them, did they not send the people away and they departed? Now then, take and prepare a new cart and two milk cows on which there has never come a yoke, and yoke the cows to the cart. But take their calves home away from them, and take the ark of the Lord, and place it on the cart, and put in a box at its side the figures of gold, which you are returning to him as a guilt offering. Then send it off and let it go its way, and watch. If it goes up on the way to its own land, to Beth Shemesh, then it is he who has done this great harm. But if not, then we shall know that it is not his hand that struck us. It happened to us by coincidence. The men did so and took two milk cows and yoked them to the cart and shut up their calves at home. And they put the ark of the Lord on the cart and the box with the golden mice and the images of their tumors. And the cows went straight in the direction of Beth Shemesh along one highway, lowing as they went. They turned neither to the right nor to the left, and the lords of the Philistines went after them as far as the border of Beth Shemesh. Now the people of Beth Shemesh were reaping their, whole, their wheat harvest in the valley, and when they lifted up their eyes and saw the ark, they rejoiced to see it. The cart came into the field of Joshua of Beth Shemesh and stopped there. A great stone was there, and they split up the wood of the cart and offered the cows as a burnt offering to the Lord. And the Levites took down the ark of the Lord, and the box was beside it, that was beside it in which there were golden figures, and set them upon the great stone. And the men of Beth Shemesh offered burnt offerings and sacrifice, sacrifices on that day to the Lord. And when the five lords of the Philistines saw it, they returned that day to Ekron. These are the golden tumors that the Philistines returned as a guilt offering to the Lord, one for Ashdod, one for Gaza, one for Ashkelon, one for Gath, one for Ekron. And the golden mice, according to the number of all the cities, of the Philistines belonging to the five lords, both fortified cities and unwalled villages. The great stone beside which they set down the ark of the Lord is a witness to this day in the field of Joshua of Beth Shemesh. And he struck some of the men of Beth Shemesh. Because they looked upon the ark of the Lord, he struck 70 men of them. And the people mourned because the Lord had struck the people with a great blow. 
Then the man of Beth Shemesh said, Who is able to stand before the Lord, this holy God? And to whom shall he go up away from us? So they sent messengers to the inhabitants of Kiriath-Jerim, saying, The Philistines have returned the ark of the Lord. Come down and take it up to you. And the men of Kiriath-Jerim came and took up the ark of the Lord and brought to the house of Abinadab on the hill. And they consecrated his son Eliezer to have charge of the ark of the Lord. From the day that the ark was lodged at Kiriath-Jerim, a long time passed, some 20 years, and all the house of Israel lamented after the Lord. Let's pray. Father in heaven, we praise you for your word, which instructs, edifies, guides, and challenges us. And we pray that your Holy Spirit would truly be in our midst this morning. We pray, Lord, for those who are heavy-hearted and downcast, that your word would be to them a great encouragement. For those, Lord, that are lifeless and just feel lethargic, we pray that your word would enliven them, drawing their eyes to the Son, to Jesus Christ, their Redeemer. In all things, Lord, may your word not return void. May it equip us, may it edify us, and may it draw us to worship. We pray these things in Christ's name. Amen. Okay, a long passage. And the first point that I want to look at this morning is the weakness of idols. The weakness of idols. In these first five verses, we read that the Ark of the Covenant, which is a really small thing, we tend to think it's this massive thing because we've been raised on Raiders of the Lost Ark, which just seems this imposing device. Well, it's really four feet, four feet, yeah, four feet long, two feet high, two feet broad. So it's a, it's a box. It's really not that large. And it's brought into the house of Dagon, the the god of Ashdod, and Ashdod is this massive fertility god, has a temple, and it's brought in there, set beside Dagon as a trophy of war. And as it's set beside Dagon, everyone leaves, all the priests of the house of Dagon, and the next morning they wake up and they find that Dagon has fallen over. Been a rough night, you know. They've just beat the Israelites, massive victory. Dagon parties maybe a little bit too hard, uh, falls over. And the amazing thing that they say here is they have to put Dagon back in its place. That's their God. They have to put Dagon back in its place. And from the outset, we immediately see the weakness of Dagon, a God that has to be put back in its place. So they put Dagon back up. They wait the next day, and what happens? They come back, and Dagon has not only fallen over this time, but his head and his hands have been cut off. Only the trunk remains. What kind of action is this? Is this meant to demonstrate that even Dagon must worship the God of Israel? There's theological importance here to the fact that the head and the hands were taken off. The head demonstrates wisdom, and the hands demonstrate power. And what is being demonstrated here in this second falling over of Dagon is that your God, your idol, Dagon, has neither wisdom to guide you, nor does he have the power to to provide and protect and to steer you in the right direction. And we may hear this and think, okay, fertility gods, the God of grain, this is just some weird stuff that we just, we're we're modern Christians. We deal with science and facts. This just seems like a bygone era that's living in superstitious land. One of the things I want us to just get from the outset is that 
idolatry may come in different shapes and sizes, may arrive at us in different periods of time, but the key that we have to remember is that idolatry, or the heart of idolatry, is always the heart. The heart of idolatry is always the heart, and we are no less susceptible to idolatry today as they were back then. So let me just give a, a few quotes from some folks that get to the point a little bit more succinctly. Martin Luther said, in speaking about idolatry, in speaking about the idols of our hearts, he says, to have a God is nothing else than to trust and believe in that one with your whole heart. To have a God, as you can well imagine, does not mean to grasp him with your fingers or to put him into your purse or to shut him up in a box. Rather, you lay hold of God when your heart grasps him and clings to him. Luther's making the point that all idolatry involves your heart. In the Heidelberg Catechism question 95, it asks, what is idolatry? What is idolatry? And the answer comes back, idolatry is having or inventing something in which one trusts in place of or alongside of the only true God who has revealed himself in the word. What the Heidelberg Catechism and Luther are getting at is anything that captures your heart, that draws all of your affection, all of your desires away from God is your idol. Sinclair Ferguson, my old minister, would say, if you really want to diagnose what your idol is, he asks the question, what is that one thing you think about when you have nothing else to think about? What is that one thing you think about when you have nothing else to think about? Where does your mind just naturally wander towards? That's your idol. Is it security? Is it the beach house, the mountain house? Is it your kids? Is it athletics? Is it sex? Whatever that is, that's your idol. And what David Wallace, David Foster Wallace, gets at, David Foster Wallace, I'm not sure if he was a believer, and I hate the author of Infinite Jest, he writes and he makes this a little bit more concrete. He brings it down to our level a little bit more. And in his 2005 Canyon College commencement address, he's basically trying to get the, the college students to think about what is true education? What is a real education? And so he's been going on and giving just little nuggets of wisdom, and then he gets to the heart of his commencement address. And this is what he says. I submit... True freedom of a real education is learning how to be well-adjusted. You get to consciously what to decide what has meaning and what doesn't. So far, so good. I mean, this is kind of common sense stuff. But then he says this, and this is where he kind of takes things a little deeper for us. He says, you also get to decide what to worship. You get to decide what to worship. Because here's something else that's weird but true. In the day-to-day -day trenches of adult life, there is actually no such thing as atheism. There is no such thing as not worshiping. Everybody worships. The only choice we get is what to worship. And the compelling reason for maybe choosing some sort of God or spiritual type thing or worship, be it Jesus Christ or Allah, be it Yahweh or the Wiccan Mother Goddess or the Four Noble Truths or some inviolable set of ethical principles, this is the line is that pretty much anything else you worship will eat you alive. Anything else you worship will eat you alive. If you worship money and things, if they are where you tap real meaning in life, then you will never have enough, never feel you have enough. It's the truth. Worship your body and beauty and sexual allure, and you will always feel ugly. And when time and age start showing, you will die a million deaths before they finally grieve you. 
worship power, you will end up feeling weak and afraid, and you will never ever more, you'll never ever have more power over others, and you will need this power to numb you to your own fear. Worship your intellect, being seen as smart, you will end up feeling stupid, a fraud, always on the verge of being found out. But the insidious thing about these forms of worship is not that they're evil or sinful. It's just that they're unconscious. They're default settings. They're the kind of worship you just gradually slip into day after day, getting more and more selective about what you see and how you measure value without ever being fully aware that that's what you're doing. He makes some really interesting points. And in so many ways, he's tracking right there with the Christian tradition of Scripture. We are created to worship. The question is, what do you worship? And if you worship the wrong thing, as David Foster Wallace says, anything else that you worship except for God will eat you alive inside. And these idols come from so many different areas. And if you'll bear with me, I want to give you two Latin terms. And you're probably thinking, I can't even understand you speaking English. Now you're going to give us Latin? Um, St. Augustine, one of the great church fathers, gets at the heart of what worship is, at the heart of what love is, and he introduces two key ideas. You can love in two particular ways. The first way is frui, F-R-U-I, that's the Latin term. Not frui, but frui, and that is a love that only goes to God. That goes to the creator. Then there's a second way of loving, and that's the uti love, U-T-I, and that is love of created things. What Augustine says is, when those two loves get disordered, and you love created things in such a way that you only are supposed to love God, then that thing becomes your idol. You are being built by God to worship him with a fruity and ultimate kind of love. That's to be your first love. But when your first love, God, gets replaced by secondary loves, whether it be your spouse, your kids, your job, your athletic team, whatever it is, that ends up becoming your slave master. It becomes your, and these things don't have to be bad. Idols don't actually have to be a bad thing. They become idols whenever you put them in that primary place of affection. So what does all this mean? It means that the, anything that's created cannot fulfill your desires. Anything which is created cannot ultimately satisfy you. Only loving God with that primary, fruity kind of love will bring you satisfaction. The key is in the ordering. You love God first, wholeheartedly, and the beauty of this is then you can actually love those created things well. The problem for us is we have expected a spouse, a child, a job to fulfill our ultimate satisfaction, and whenever we live that way, what ends up happening, they are expected to bear all the burden that only God can bear. And so we end up crushing them or smothering them, exhausting them. And in a strange and very sad kind of way, that misshapen, disordered love, to quote David Foster Wallace, will end up eating us alive. See, this is the problem with Dagon. He cannot provide ultimate satisfaction. When God takes his head and his hands from Dagon, he's showing the Philistines and us today, your idols can't satisfy you. They can't provide wisdom for you. An idol without a head, an idol without hands, is no good. And all the things and the people that we invest our ultimate love in, our primary love, will end up eventually falling face down before God 
And uh, Psalm 81 really gets at this. In verses 9 through 10, it captures the sense of idolatry on the one side, but also the absolutely glorious sufficiency of God on the other. Psalm 81, verses 9 through 10 reads this. There shall be no strange God among you. You shall not bow down to a foreign God. I am the Lord your God, who brought you up out of the land of Egypt. Open your mouth wide, and I will fill it. Only God can satisfy. Only God can provide for what our heart truly desires. So that's the first point. The first point being that our idols are weak. Our second point is that God's power is so powerful. God's power is so powerful. And if you look at this passage, uh, we've looked at Dagon, and then the very next verse is so instructive. Right after it's the falling of Dagon has just instilled so much fear into those who are in Ashdod, you get this phrase, the hand of the Lord was heavy against the people of Ashdod. And I will return to this phrase because it's so important. Because if you were listening to me and you were able to understand what I was saying, there's this theme that just recurs. The hand of the Lord, the hand of the Lord, the hand of the Lord. What's that about? This heavy hand of the Lord. We'll return to that in a minute. But it's important to see what's going on here. Ashdod is afflicted. Dagon is being destroyed. The tumors break out through mice. It's some kind of bubonic plague. And the people of Ashdod come together and say, we've got to get this thing out of here. So they pass it on to Gath. Same thing happens. Tumors break out. People are afflicted in the vicinity. And with the people that Gath do, they send it on to Ekron. So we like go and send it. If this was to be going like from Richardson to Garland, back over to Preston Hollow, it's people just getting rid of this thing. It's hot potato with the Ark of the Covenant. And nobody wants it because it's creating so much destruction in its path. And what they end up doing in Ekron, when it finally gets to Ekron, is they finally say, okay, we've got to get this thing back to the Israelites. It's, it's wiping out our people. So they, they say in verse 10 of chapter 6, let's strap this thing to a cart. We'll give the golden mice, golden tumors in a box. We'll set alongside. We'll give two mother cows who have just given birth. And if this is truly of the hand of the Lord, it will go straight to Beth Shemesh. But if nature takes its course, those mother cows are going to come back to want to nurse. So they strap the two cows to the cart. They set it off. And what's amazing is those cows make a beeline for Beth Shemesh. This is like the best road trip ever for these. The baby cows are at home, calves, and it goes straight into the field of Joshua. And as Scripture says so poetically, they went lowing. They went lowing. They are fully content. So the cart arrives in the field of Joshua in Israelite vicinity. And you would think, okay, it's home. Everything's going to be back to normal. Here's the happy ending. And what ends up happening God has just struck down the Israelites via the Philistines, 34,000. The Ark of the Covenant has just made this zigzag track across the cities of Philistia. It comes home, and what ends up happening is that 70 people of Israel are struck down. Why? I mean, the impression we get is this God is unpredictable. He's wiping out everyone. He's dangerous. He cannot be controlled. And you would be right to think that. God is dangerous. God cannot be controlled. God isn't predictable. But what is it that goes on here? Was God just in striking down these 70 men? If we 
But know our scripture, we know that in Numbers 4, God gave instructions, very specific instructions about how the Ark of the Covenant was to be approached. And no one approaches the Ark of the Covenant according to God's delineation. And we will see this later in 2 Samuel chapter 6. It's a, it's a passage that is more familiar with us. David is eventually king. He says, okay, we've got to get this Ark back up to Jerusalem from Kiriath Jerim. And what ends up happening? This ark is going up to Jerusalem, and Uzzah sees the shifting in the cart, reaches out his hand to touch the ark, and he's struck down immediately. What we see is the glory of God cannot be controlled. But what the glory of God demands from us is that we must approach God on God's terms. We must approach God on God's terms. And this brings us back to this idea of the heavy hand of God the heavy hand of God is a, in other words, it's shorthand for the glory of God. When you read about the hand of God or the heavy hand of God, see that as shorthand for God's glory. And this is a theme that runs right throughout this passage. Remember when the man from Benjamin runs back, tells Eli, 30,000 people have died, your sons, Hophni and Phinehas are dead, and the Ark of the Covenant has been captured. And then Phineas's wife hears about this in midstream childbirth and names her son Ichabod, right? Ichabod. The kabod aspect of that name means glory. The kabod aspect means glory. And when you read this theme of hand, we have to see that in the Hebrew, hand and glory are almost synonymous. Hand is kaved, glory is kavod, ikavod. Glory and heavy go together. And when we think about heaviness and glory going together, heaviness actually defines for us what glory actually is. God's glory is heavy. In the Ark of the Covenant, right, you have the cherubim, and what is described is the heavy light of God's glory sits there. God's glory is his heaviness. So we read in 5, 6, the hand of the Lord was heavy against the people. Verse 9, the hand of the Lord was heavy against the city. 5.11, the hand of God was very heavy there. The thing that we have to grasp from this is that God's glory has gravity. God's glory has substance. There is a wittiness to God's glory that speaks of his invisible yet immense substantial presence. And just to bring this home a little bit for us, as we look at the Philistines, the glory departs, it's exile from Israel. And when we hear that the glory is heavy on the Philistines, God's glory will either smother us or it will anchor us. It will either crush us and smother us or it will anchor us and center us. And it all comes down to how we approach God. And what we see in this passage is not only have the Israelites lost the glory of God, they had lost the center around which they were ordered and they ended up being superstitious. They ended up looking upon God as just someone attached to this ark that will do our bidding. And when that happens, we start having a really bad view of who God is. When God is no longer at the center, when God, God's weight, his glory no longer anchors us, the person who takes the center is us. We occupy that center. God ends up being on the outskirts of our hearts. He's on the suburbs of our hearts. And when that happens, we begin to look at God as being nice, friendly, user-friendly, perhaps even well-mannered. 
But that's not what we're reading about here. God wipes out Philistines and he wipes out Israelites. His glory is terrifying. When God is not at the center of our lives, we end up domesticating the divine. We end up trivializing God. In other words, the gravity of God's glory is replaced by a sense of, or an attitude of us taking God lightly. Well, I've, I've sinned, yeah, but you know, God is always forgiving. That's what he does. That's his job. I sin, he forgives. It's fine. I don't have to repent. What's ended up happening when we take God lightly, when we don't see the gravity of his glory, this domestication means we've turned God from being the awesome, glorious, terrifying God into a nice God. Steve Long says, we've actually given an extreme makeover to Isaiah 6. I saw the Lord sitting on a lawn chair, close and friendly, and the emblem of his ball cap said, Dallas Cowboys. Seraphs called one to another and said, nice, nice, nice is the Lord of hosts. The whole earth is full of his niceness. A little less crass, perhaps, is Dorothy Sayers in her wonderful book, The Greatest Drama Ever Staged. She says, we have very efficiently paired the claws of the Lion of Judah, certified him meek and mild, and recommended him as a fitting household pet for pale curates and pious old ladies. And I had to throw this quote in because it's one of my favorites. Um, from Annie Dillard's book, Teaching a Stone to Talk, she says, On the whole, I do not find Christians outside of the catacombs sufficiently sensible of conditions. Does anyone have the foggiest idea what sort of power we so blithely invoke? Whereas I suspect, does no one believe a word of it? The churches are children playing on the floor with their chemistry sets, mixing up a batch of TNT to kill a Sunday morning. It is madness to wear ladies' straw hats and velvet hats to church. We should all be wearing crash helmets. Ushers should issue life preservers and signal flares. They should lash us to our pews. For the sleeping God may wake someday and take offense, or the waking God may draw us out to where we can never return. What they're getting at is we treat God as some kind of rabbit's foot. We treat God as someone who will always be there and will always take care of stuff without us repenting, without us focusing him in the center of our lives. And when God exists in the suburbs of our hearts, we end up removing the glory that he deserves. And when we take away and rob God of his honor and glory, we not only find ourselves not doing what we were created to do, we end up finding ourselves being less than what we were created to be. God becomes functional to us. He is that cosmic lifeguard that only shows up when we start being submerged in the deep end of the, of the pool. But he's never a constant companion. But God will refuse and does refuse to become or be turned into a means for our own ends. God must be worshipped. God must be worshipped. And it must be on his terms. The approach to God must be on his terms. But it's not just on his terms. That our worship must reflect who he is in himself, his glory. For God to be worshipped requires that it be holistic. What do I mean by that? It means that God requires total, complete devotion. Full, complete devotion of our lives. It can't just be a Sunday morning. The benediction will become later on. And we'll go and we'll do our thing. We'll not think about God. God's glory must permeate every aspect of who we are. It must challenge every false agenda that we hold on to. 
You see, for God to be glorious and for his gravity of glory to keep us anchored and centered, this means that God will not allow us to worship him partially or seasonally. Every part of who we are, our identities, sexualities, our dreams, our future aspirations must submit to him. So let me ask this question. Is there any part of your life that you have not submitted to this glorious God? Is there any aspect to your life that you cannot bring to him in prayer? If I, if I keep this hidden, don't bring it up with God. If I just don't bring it up. He'll not know about it. God's not our spouse. We can hide these kinds of things from our spouses and our children. We can't hide these things from God. God already knows every inch of your heart. Are your future plans featured into your communion with God? Does he, does he receive everything from your heart? Every aspect. Do you bring everything to the Lord in prayer? This is where Romans 12, 1 really hits us right between the eyes. Present your bodies as a living sacrifice. Worship is holistic. It's not just singing some songs. It's not confessing sins. It's not listening to some Irish guy preaching from the Bible. It invades every aspect of who you are. Otherwise, it's not worship. God commands full allegiance. So let me flip this around a little bit. It might be a sign that God is in the suburbs of your heart if you find it difficult to acquire or achieve contentment and satisfaction in your Christian life. Why? Because God's not at the center. And when God's not at the center, you will always be dissatisfied. You will always be struck with a lack of contentment. Let me broaden that out to us as a body. It might be a sign that God is in the suburbs of a church if the hands of the church are busier than the hands of glory. Churches that end up doing too much without those times of consecrated, devoted prayer end up pushing God to the outskirts and we end up becoming the center of attention. A church that has dedicated times of prayer where we are able to commune with God over the most important things show us what's most important. So whether it's a church plant, whether it's a future minister, whether it's a particular ministry, are we coming together and praying to God? Does he center us? Does he position us and anchor us to himself so we can worship him, so we can bring the heaviest parts of our hearts to God? But we not only render God nice and quaint and put him outside of our heart's zip code, but some of us may think, well, if I allow him to come close to the center of who I am, he's going to do what he did to the Philistines and the, and the Israelites. I mean, he's unpredictable. He's just going to zap me. Or worse, he may take me to some place I don't want to go to or have me marry some person I don't want to marry or something that I don't want to do. If I let God get too close, he's going to do things that I just don't want to happen in my life. I have a plan for my life. I have a trajectory. In 10 years, it's going to be this. 15, it's going to be this. 20, this. That's not how God operates. We have to remember, for God to be God in our lives, he commands everything. Everything. You cannot hide anything from God. And for God to come close to a believer who is, submits all their heart, it's not going to be a posture of fear. 
It's going to be a posture of rest, of reposing, of joy, of contentment. And then finally, how do we stand? How do we approach such an awesome, unpredictable, terrifying God like this? See, idols have no hands. Dagon has no hands. Yet God's hands seem to be too heavy for us. So how do we come near to this God? And this is the big question, right, that is asked at the end of this passage in 1 Samuel 6, verse 20. Then the, Be- the men of Beth Shemesh said, Who is able to stand before the Lord, this holy God? Who is able to stand before the Lord? And David asks the very same question in Psalm 24. Who shall ascend the hill of the Lord? And who shall stand in his holy place? And what's the answer? He who has clean hands and a pure heart. The only person that can stand before this, the heavy hands of God's glory, is he who has clean hands and a pure heart. And there's only one person who has perfectly clean hands and a perfectly pure heart, and that is your elder brother, Jesus Christ. And the amazing thing about this is that Christ's nail-pierced hands don't just redeem you, they carry you. They bring you into the Father's presence, stand you up, clean your hands, purify your heart so that you can now be centered and anchored to this glorious God without fear. Whatever haunts you from your past, whatever sin that you have committed that keeps you up at night, gives you the deepest sense of regret, the nail-pierced hands of Jesus Christ takes that away. It takes that away. It allows you to stand with pure innocence, not on your own merits, not on your own doing, not on all the scrubbing and cleansing that you do, performance-based lifestyle, because Christ does it. The way that we're able to stand and approach this kind of amazing God is because of Jesus Christ. Why would you not want God at the center of your life? Why would you not want to give everything over to him to have the gravity of his glory, the gravity of his grace just hold you fix you in place? Why would you not want to worship this kind of God that's done so much and that blesses you with so much? And the beautiful thing about this is that these hands that are nail-pierced not only redeem us, carry us, and clean us, but they also give to us. So in a few minutes, we're going to come to this table, and this God of grace, this God of glory is going to feed you. He's going to strengthen you. Because he will not leave you alone. He wants you to be like his son. And he wants you to be in his presence. And he wants to be center of your life. Because that's the best thing for you.